Well, hello, hello. Welcome to the show, a podcast dedicated to getting to the root causes of your biggest health challenges and ultimately quieting the noise in the health, food, and fitness world. I'm your resident health detective and host, Dr. Lauren, a former TV news journalist and chronic illness patient gone functional medicine expert, helping patients radically take back their health into their own hands. And on the show, we're all about disrupting both conventional wisdom and diet culture as we know it. So we can bring you root cause solutions that actually work to take your health back into your own hands for sure. Today, we're talking all about breast cancer, something that I believe you probably know someone that has had it. Maybe you've had it yourself. We have all been affected to some degree uh, with cancer in general as well. Um, I've had several patients over the years come to me on with both ends, like recently diagnosed to uh, former diagnoses and, and, or just going through treatment and, and seeking out support in ways that they can make their body as most resilient as possible in order to not only in, go through treatment, but also come out on the other side, um, just stronger and, and to continue on in health and robust living post-cancer. And there is no one size fits all approach to cancer treatment, just like there's no one size fits all approach to any any treatment. That's where the beauty of customization comes into play for individuals. Um, but there are some common themes that I've seen understanding the root causes of diagnoses, things like cancer, autoimmunity, diabetes, hormone imbalances, gut issues. So understanding some of these root causes can ultimately help you and your practitioner shape a proactive plan for making your body and your immune system really resilient and indispensable. So today, super excited to have Carol Laurie in the house. She's a naturopathic practitioner and acupuncturist who's just going to knock your socks off with her sound wisdom and proactive encouraging optimism that she brings to the cancer journey, um, no matter where you or a loved one are in that process. And ultimately with the belief system that you're not too far gone and, and that there is so much opportunity for supporting the body, both during treatment of conventional treatment care and standard of care protocols, as well as post-treatment. And you're definitely going to love this episode. I think encourage you to share it with someone you love or take notes for yourself. Also, just don't forget, you can get all the latest and greatest updates over at my website, drlauren.com. There's also a place where you could submit your Ask Dr. Lauren Anything questions or give us any feedback of anything that you would want to hear more about on the show. Your wish is my command. And I learned so much from your feedback. Don't forget to leave a review as well in iTunes. It helps us get seen and loved and liked by more people out there. Really excited to take their own health back into their own hands and on a mission to get to the root causes. So without further ado, let's get to the show. Carol, I'm so excited to have you in the house today and just to tackle a topic that is near and dear to the hearts of you know many females I've known throughout my life. Um, many females listening to this, at, we all know someone I think that has either had cancer, um, whether it's a loved one or ourselves have been affected to some degree. It's just so, so rampant nowadays and would love to just know a little bit about your backstory and really what got you into this field and doing this work that you are doing in the world with helping uh, women become um, thrivers post, post-cancer. Well, thank you so much for having me here. And I'm really excited to share this information with your audience. Um, as a naturopath, I uh, attended the National College of Naturopathic Medicine in Portland, Oregon. And of course, we learned about cancer uh, during our studies there. So it was something on my radar that could benefit from naturopathic modalities and treatment. But it was just a disease. And then uh, one day, the disease became very personal to me when my dear friend was diagnosed with breast cancer. 
and she was healthy. We, you know, she ate organic, she exercised. Of course, she had her problems like most of us do, but this was a big shock. And I committed to going through uh, the treatment with her entirely. And it took 18 months, biopsy, chemotherapy infusions, radiation. Then she had to have her uterus removed later because she had an adverse effect to the tamoxifen, which does happen. But right from the beginning, I began to use my skill set as a naturopath and acupuncturist to help her reduce the side effects of chemotherapy treatment. And one day we were sitting in the UCSF oncology office and the doctor looked at her blood work and then looked at us and said, I don't know what you're doing, but I want all of my patients to be doing that too. Because her blood work, she didn't have any anemia, her white cell count was good and she had energy. And the doctor said, this is not the blood work of somebody who's in the middle of chemotherapy. What are you doing? So I realized that this protocol, these protocols really made sense and they helped. And then my clinical practice began to focus on helping women during and after treatment. And there is a huge need for this. As you mentioned, everyone knows someone who has had or has breast cancer and one in eight women and up to 13% of women will have a recurrence in the first five years after they finish treatment. So there is the scope of the problem for breast cancer is large. And I created an online program to work with women in groups and to educate them and support them through their breast cancer treatment and recovery and preventing recurrence journey. Mm, so amazing. And just so like, it seems like the wild west. I mean, amazing that you're offering this because it, I really, in my time in healthcare and as a provider, not really known where to refer folks out to specifically like, you know, post recovery until I began to learn uh, some of the just supports that I think we're going to talk about today as well to help patients now, but would love to first, what is the presenting problem that you've seen in your like years doing this as far as like you had mentioned the bell is not completely, or they're not done when the bell is rung. Explain that and talk to us a little bit about that. Sure. So when you're finished radiation, usually, or chemo, there is a ritual within the oncology wards that you get to ring this bell and they're told you're done with cancer is cured or you have no evidence of disease. And then women are often put on tamoxifen or aromatase inhibitors if they have hormone positive breast cancer. But the message that I get from women when I ask my community of over 10,000 women, what is your number one concern since your diagnosis? 80% of them said, I'm afraid it will come back. Did the treatments get it all? I don't want it to come back. And cancer is a metabolic disease. And what that means is when you're done with active treatment, the active is chemotherapy, radiation, and you're placed on hormone blocking medication, tamoxifen or aromatase inhibitors. It's then your turn to undertake the process of making your body, your mind, and your lifestyle inhospitable to cancer regrowth. And the fact that cancer is a metabolic disease gives you a lot of power and opportunity and options over whether your body is pro-cancer growth or the opposite, inhospitable to cancer regrowth. And that's one of the tool sets that I talk to women and provide skills so they have that and they can then undertake that as part of their long-term recovery. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about like a metabolic disease, I feel like a lot of folks in mainstream would think instantly like, you know, diabetes, we hear about like metabolic panels. To explain that a little bit more though, like what does metabolic disease really mean? Sure. Uh, well, I'm glad that you mentioned diabetes because in 1918, a German scientist by the name of Otto Warburg discovered what has been termed the Warburg effect, and he won the Nobel Medicine Prize for that. 
And what he discovered is that cancer cells, given the choice between oxygen or sugar for what I call the cancer gas tank, will choose sugar, even though they get less ATP or less gas, so to speak, less energy, and they have to work for a much more difficult pathway to get there. So cancer feeds sugar. That is the beginning. Sugar feeds of, cancer. I meant the other way around. Yeah, cancer I get it. Sugar. Mm-hmm. Yes, sugar feeds cancer. Sorry, everyone. So sugar feeds cancer. And that is the beginning of the fact that cancer is a metabolic disease. That was the first discovery that we can influence if we are helping cancer cells grow or we're depriving them what they need for procreation through by changing the tumor microenvironment and the environment in your body. And that gives women and well, men, not just about breast cancer, it gives everyone with cancer a lot of important information that they can impact if cancer is going to grow or if you're going to make it very difficult for cancer to continue to grow in your body. Great. Yes. I I see that commonly just with any state of disease, like really the metabolic issues oftentimes being underpinning in a lot of, a lot of states of disease because of how cortisol and blood sugar are really related as well. Cortisol would feed off of blood sugar. I, I think something too, I'd like to clarify that I see in clinical practice. I don't know about you with the sugar issue is it's not just Hershey's candy bars that are sugar um, that folks are just eating or ice cream, which we know there is sugar like in a lot of food sources. Um, Something that I commonly see though, is just like dysglycemia. So maybe it's just not enough essential protein in the diet, or it's like running on a lot of caffeine and coffee, (laughs) Um, like are needing kind of those hits of like just snacky, kind of like the hypoglycemia dips where maybe you're not reaching for a cookie or candy bar, but maybe it is like needing fruit every few hours or like not eating much earlier on in the day and then eating later in the day. So just a blood sugar imbalance pattern. Is that something that you see with like metabolic um, issues underpinning the cancer? Or would you say like sugar overtly is really the issue? No, I'm really glad that you brought that up. I think that is part of it. I think that first of all, I do encourage at certain points intermittent fasting. So we as Americans were brought up with the concept that you get up and you have to eat breakfast. I mean, I think that, you know, once again, this has been researched and published in PubMed that when you deprive your body of food at starting at hour 13 to 16, you get the benefit. It's called intermittent fasting. And what that does is it stresses out cancer cells and the healthy cells go into protection mode. So you want to stress out the cancer cells. So that encourages cancer cell death. So, but how you start the day uh, determines, in my opinion, the metabolic messaging that you're providing your body. So you are correct. It's not just candy bars and ice cream and cookies. It's also simple carbohydrates. So eating cereal out of a box or eating some crackers, even if they're gluten-free, they have a very high glycemic index. So how do we provide our body with the the nutrients it needs without just focusing on carbs or a food that's quickly translated and processed into simple sugars. So protein in the morning, vegetables, not always fruit, the more that you can consistently provide your body with the right forms of energy. So that, as you mentioned, you don't go into those low blood sugar blips where you're just grabbing whatever you can to put fuel in your gas tank, so to speak. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that's perhaps where the paradox can come into play too. And an individual maybe does get cancer that is living quote unquote, like a healthy lifestyle. It's like they were following whether it was a plant-based diet or they were doing the keto thing. And uh-huh. it's seemingly like, why would this person then get cancer? And yet there could be this underpinning of like dysglycemia on both for both of those individuals based on like how their body is able to either eat and process and absorb um, their nutrients and balance their blood sugar during the day. One of the things that I see all the time when I work with people is that the diagnosis of breast cancer is sort of like a chapter heading and the more thorough genomic and genetic testing you do, you get to see what SNPs and are out of balance and that and how that created taken all together that can lead your body down the cancer path, whether it's for breast cancer or colon cancer or lung cancer, there's always uh, any type of cancer, there's always genetic and genomic component of it. And dysglycemia is absolutely a contributing factor for that, but there's no one thing unless you were exposed to like a Chernobyl radiation moment or you're a smoker and then you have that genetic defect, which is then going to increase your risk of uh, lung cancer. Cause there are people who smoke and don't get lung cancer. So what determines who gets it and who doesn't get it if they've been smoking, uh, that's due to your genetics. Yeah. That's something I did when I kind of like asked you about too, is do you do DNA testing with your patients? And I'm kind of like, just not too shocked, but with a lot of my patients that have come to me that have had a cancer diagnosis that they've been working through it and they're on the back end. Like when I ask for labs of any sort, like, I mean, even like a complete hormone panel is not run. And I don't know if that's, you do run as much labs to see where the person stands and, or if it's even beneficial, like once a person's been diagnosed, it's like, you know, you have cancer. And so then it's just like working through how to optimize the body on the back end. Well, I am a firm believer in gathering lots of information. And one of the things I'm concerned about, and I see this all the time, is that when women, and I'm going to just talk about women because that's my area of specialty, they come to see me and they have had, you know, a biopsy. So that generates a certain amount and then of information. And then depending on the breast cancer, like if it's a DCIS, then they should have an, what is known as an oncotype. But there are, which will then determine their benefits, statistical benefit from doing chemo and or radiation. But there are a lot of other, much more in-depth genomic tests for breast cancer across the board and also for lung and colon cancer. There's the Karis Molecular Intelligence Test, which really takes apart all the genetic SNPs that have contributed to that person's individual cancer. It then determines which of the chemotherapy agents that cancer will respond to, and it will match up the person with any clinical trials so that if they get a recurrence, they know that immediately. Unfortunately, the way the standard oncology operates is, I think this test should be done across the board in the beginning. And I'll give you an example. There's something called a TOPO1 and TOPO2 genetic defect, which if someone has that, it's very clear that they will fail chemotherapy. So I had a woman who had um, hormone positive breast cancer and she was 36 and that's young. And she was being treated at Stanford. And I kept asking the oncologist to order this test. And the doctor said, no. So she went through her eight weeks of chemotherapy, at which time she had progressed to stage three. So she had failed chemotherapy. Only then would the doctor order the test. And it showed that she had these two genetic markers, which clearly indicated that she was going to fail chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. So if we had known that at the beginning, uh, we could have saved her going through chemotherapy. And then there's the neogenomics laboratory. There's foundation. And one, there's a lot of other tests that we can be done and standard oncology has their method and their system. And when you work with an integrative practitioner, whether it's a naturopathic integrative oncologist or a medical doctor who 
has become interested and taken more classes in integrative oncology, we have a little bit of a different, more comprehensive philosophy about testing. And there's a whole bunch of testing that I recommend that we do so we can get an understanding of what's the landscape of the person's body that might be contributing towards cancer growth. For example, copper promotes angiogenesis, copper promotes cancer cell division and uh, making of new blood vessels. So when we test for serum copper, if somebody's copper is elevated, well, we, that's like the red flag going up. And we now know that we need to deal with that. We have to optimize their copper with giving, making sure they have enough zinc, but then there's a certain procedures where we can give certain supplements to really reduce the copper. And for a lot of people, that is a life-saving moment, that information. Unfortunately, copper as a standard of blood work is not normally run for most by most oncologists. So it's something that I work with the woman who's working with me to talk to her oncologist and really get them to order that and insist if necessary. And, and do you do that through um, blood or urine? It's a blood test. It's, it's serum. It's serum copper, serum zinc, serum ceruloplasm. Yes, it's blood. Mm. Micronutrients too, as well. Like, do you find any themes like there and besides the copper? Is there anything nutrient wise? Uh, vitamin D and zinc. Most Americans are. There's been a lot of ad, you know talk about that right now during during the pandemic. But most Americans are vitamin and zinc deficient. And I was just teaching in my Empowered Against Recurrence group class about zinc. Where we get the most zinc is through oysters. Now, oysters are only to be eaten during a month that has the letter R in it. So May, June, July, August, you're not going to want to eat oysters. But who is eating oysters every day? I don't know anybody who eats oysters every day. So it's very easy to take 30 to 50 milligrams of zinc in a, in a little capsule as a supplement. And vitamin D has been researched a lot about breast cancer recurrence and vitamin D deficiency. And it's, there is a direct lineage. I mean, it's one of the contributing factors to recurrence and it's very easily corrected. I mean, unless you're out in the sun all the time, which then has, you know, we have to be careful that we're protecting our skin against skin cancer. It's very easy to take 5,000 IU of vitamin D a day in a, a supplement. Now, the caveat here about supplements is you don't want to buy them from Costco, Trader Joe's or CVS. They need to be made, as you know, by one of the companies who have third-party testing and make their products to pharmaceutical quality standards. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not just ordering willy-nilly or any any labeled vitamin D being mm -hmm. equal. Well, we've talked about uh, blood sugar. We've talked about genetics. What about like hormones and toxins? Um, you hear about like the bad estrogens and the good estrogens within a breast cancer diagnosis. Is that pretty accurate that you find? Um, yeah. Kind of diving down the hormone rabbit hole for a second. Sure. Well, it's interesting to me that when women are diagnosed with hormone positive breast cancer, the majority of time, their hormones are not checked. I know. So, yeah. Crazy. But, yeah. That's unfortunate. And, but with this young woman who was 36, after she failed chemotherapy, she was put on Lupron and Lupron blocks estrogen production. And she, her oncologist was checking her estrogen levels to make sure that they were sufficiently suppressed. And she was placed in, you know, drug induced menopause because for her, there was a very clear correlation between the estrogen feeding the cancer cells and causing breast cancer growth. Her oncologist did check estrogen uh, levels, but the majority of women I see, their doctors do not check that. And if they've been put on tamoxifen aromatase inhibitors and they come into my practice, 
it's not a valid test because they're on medication, which is blocking that whole system. Now, there are cases where women have certain very minor forms of breast cancer in which they've opted out of doing tamoxifen or aromatase inhibitors. And in those cases, their oncologist, where I do a Dutch hormonal panel, which tells us how their body is handling their hormones. And then we put them on certain protocols and then we monitor every you know three to six months how their estrogen and hormones are being suppressed appropriately. In those cases, we do do hormonal panels, but for the majority of women with breast cancer, they don't look at how their estrogen is broken down. It's sort of like, and I asked an oncologist about this once and she said, well, it's sort of like the horse has already left the barn. Mm. Now you and I are for the root cause. So of course we want to know where the disturbance is or the dysbiosis is, but by the time the women are on hormone blocking medication, it's, you're not getting a valid assessment, right? Right. It's kind of, it is just the medication assessment. Well, and what are the side effects of like long-term hormonal therapy, like the Lupron? Well, there's, that's why week number six of my empowered against recurrence class is reducing the side effects of tamoxifen and aromatase inhibitors, long-term side effects. Number one, Osteoporosis, uh, cardiovascular disease. Yeah. I yeah, think those kind number of like one all is, yeah. the low estrogen. estrogen. Yeah. Very, you know, and it's serious problem. And the medications that they are that are recommended to reduce the osteoporosis have their own set of difficulties. The longer you're on certain ones of them, the more likely you're going to have an increased risk for a long bone fracture. And so my attitude is I want to take the best of both worlds always um, for treatment and recovery and preventing recurrence. And it's, you know, taking care of bone health is uh, an important part and important component of my empowered against recurrence program. Mm -hmm. Last thing here, like I think as an underlying factor too, well, I guess there's a couple, like there is the gut, which gut is gateway to immune, also toxin exposure. So like xenoestrogens, um, is mm-hmm. that something that you talk about with your patients? And I've seen, for example, I do a lot of work in the mold space, mycotoxin, mycotoxicity has a very xenoestrogen uh, like nature as well. And like a lot of times cancers are correlated with toxic mold exposure, whether it was a lot, a lot of times like chronic without recognizing it living in an environment, but then we have things like BPA in our water bottles that's in receipt paper and hand sanitizer and, um, just plastics in general toys and food sources. Um, but yeah, to what degree do you talk about toxins with your patients and see that as being an underpinning theme as well? I absolutely talk about BPAs and plastic and it's part of the week of healthy lifestyle. I have been shocked how people don't know. First of all, I don't, think we should be microwaving frozen food to eat it, especially if you have a metabolic or autoimmune disease or anything like that. But there are people who eat, you know, what healthy choice has been branded as a healthy choice. I think that's hysterically (laughs) funny. It should be called unhealthy choice, but they'll take a healthy choice. They, you know, this is how they've started. They take it and they put it in the microwave and it's in plastic and the hair is standing up on the top of my head. I mean, it's like, oh my God, we have to educate immediately. But I think that removing plastics from our, about how we handle food is critical. And I think part of, you know, our personal care products and our home care products are really important. I'll, I'll tell a story that doesn't have to do with cancer, but it's, it's a true story. A woman came in to see me, she was 35 and she had 
a diagnosis of quote, unexplained infertility, which I really love when people come in with that unexplained diagnosis of anything, because as functional medicine practitioners, you and I know that there's always a reason for an illness mm -hmm. and they just haven't done the right testing. Often, as you said, it could be mold, could be toxins. So we just need to discover what it is. So she had on enough perfume and I had a scent-free office that it was sort of like walking through the ground floor of Macy's. It was so <laughs> strong. And I said to her, so tell me about scent. And she goes, oh, I love scents. I put perfume on every day. I have those air plugins. I have those little mm -hmm. sticks with the oil. And then this was the ki uh, killer for me. I spray my sofa oh, with man. that spray. And it's like, oh, Febreze. <laughs> yes, Febreze. So I said to her, so when you go home, I want you to gather every single thing that you use in the home and on your body and put it on the counter and take a photo, 29 items. Mm. So I said to her, you don't have unexplained infertility. You have toxic overload that's creating estrogen disruption in your body. And she had to throw out her sofa because we couldn't detoxify it from the spray stuff. Oh, wow. You and, helped her. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. It was very easy. This was an easy fix. Three months later, baby number one. A couple of years later, baby number two. She didn't have to spend $40,000 on IVF. She just had to be educated because people don't know. They watch TV, they see the advertising, and they think, oh, that's nice. I have a dog. It's smelly. It's going, going to be on the sofa. I'm going to spray. Or, you know, I like the way this smells and I'm going to stick it in the wall or put it in those or the dryer sheets. You know, you get out of the shower and your pores are open and then you wrap your body in a towel that's been exposed to the dryer sheets. And then all those chemicals are sucked up into your skin and they block, you know, they go into the, like what I call the estrogen parking garage. So when the real estrogen is looking for a place to bind, to be excreted, there's no place because this fake estrogen, estrogen disruptors from the chemicals from the dryer sheets have already taken up that spot. And then you get elevated estrogen dominance, which leads to infertility, polycystic ovarian syndrome, and even cancer. It's a contributing factor towards cancer. So absolutely, I think that xenoestrogens and mycotoxins are a critical component of all inflammatory illness. Mm -hmm. And perhaps, yeah, I mean, a huge epidemic that, I mean, not many people are talking about. Definitely commercials are not advertising <laughs> this. Oh, um, there's no commercials yeah. out there about this. And yeah. I don't even know if we could get them out there, right? I mean. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's too many that's companies. another topic. Yeah. Yes. Well, and just to even think like about things that we do on a daily. So for like going back to the coffee example, like not just from a blood sugar perspective, but like a lot of coffee grounds are contaminated with mycotoxins, like across yeah. contamination. I mean, obviously like the gluten and pesticide kind of like um, issues as well, toxins just in our food sources, but it doesn't have to just be like packaged foods either. Like the kind of why organic foods are oftentimes promoted as being a bit better for us isn't just because it's organic, but it's because of the pesticide residues and like fertilizers and everything that are also xenoestrogenic in nature. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm wondering for you, like, do you ever get folks that come to you and ask like, you know, is there a way that I can go through cancer treatment naturally, like not having to go through the chemo radiation, um, if that's a choice that they're wanting to make for themselves? Okay. Well, it depends on the nature of their cancer. Mm-hmm. First of all, that's not my area of expertise. I mean, I will have an initial appointment with them and make recommendations, but if they are really against standard of care, which I absolutely respect, they need to find um, a practitioner who will work with them in that area because that's not my license and that's not my ability. But there are some times, and I have had a few, where their cancer was so minute and the biopsy was so clear, they didn't have it, it wasn't an aggressive cancer and they're 
oncotype came back very low and you know they could the oncologist was saying well you could do radiation and they opted not to do that that's a different story than if somebody has a large tumor and they have done a biopsy and they understand that it is potentially aggressive and the benefits of chemotherapy mm-hmm. may out i mean it's a mixed bag yeah. treatment is it's everybody has to make a decision for themselves there are communities where women are choosing to do black salve on their breasts and detoxify. And there's the Jane McClellan book, which I think is very valid and really expert in which she uses off-label drugs to attend to the metabolic pathways of cancer. I'm not a Jane McClellan um, practitioner. I was on a conference panel with her at the Annie Appleseed conference in February of 2019 and met her. And I think she is really wonderful at what she does, but that's not the path that I utilize, but there is definitely that path and it does help a lot of people. So I think that is part of what happens for someone when they're diagnosed with cancer. Of course, they start researching and they use Dr. Google and they use maybe Facebook groups and they're looking for a community that will support their inner belief mm-hmm. in what is the best path for them. Yeah. Super individualized. Well, and just like, I think, I mean, kind of having your cake and eating it too. Like if one does go through the chemo radiation, like putting yourself on the offense and the defense, like to make your body as stealth as possible to go through it is where the supportive adjunctive therapies. When one colleague of mine comes to mind where he had terminal brain cancer and metastasized throughout his entire body. And so Mm. definitely was going to go through chemo and, and radiation was kind of just like, it was before even his own health journey began. And on kind of the back end of like his recovery or kind of going through it, like in the weeds of it, he was having to get his nutrition through a tube and his big aha moment was turning over that can of uh, like Nestle formula <laughs> and oh seeing goodness. like the, oh. the high mm. fructose corn syrup in there. Yes. And, just all the ingredients of names he couldn't pronounce and just thinking like, what am I putting my body in? He threw it away and decided to juicing his own food through his mm-hmm. tube. And just like in the aftermath of like all his recovery and just really took the ball and ran with it from there, but using food as medicine and a lot of like adjunctive therapies supporting the systems. And now is hundred percent cancer-free and had a child, his wife that he was told he would never like even have or live to see. Uh, and just so it is powerful and like, like you mentioned with ringing the bell, when you ring the bell, you're not done of like, just what an opportunity we all have in whatever health journey to kind of continue once, even if we do go through a traditional route, like you're not done either way. You don't have to be. Right. And so my whole attitude is let's take the best of both worlds. And there are ways of preparing for chemotherapy, which is what my treatment module is about, where you are protecting your healthy cells and you're stressing out your chemo cells, the cancer cells. So when the chemo comes in there, the cancer cells go, oh, I'm hungry, I'm gonna eat this. And they take up more of the chemotherapy. And that's one of the benefits of intermittent fasting. You don't want to eat a steak today and go to chemo tomorrow and then wonder why you're hardly nauseous and not feeling well after chemo. I mean, you want to show up and be emotionally prepared and use meditation and visualization to get that chemotherapy into your cancer cells more so that the cells will die. And then you want to support detoxification after the chemotherapy is over and protect your bone marrow so you don't end up with horrible anemia or depressed white cell count. So there is an enormous amount that you can do to prepare for and attend to the consequences of medical oncology, chemo and radiation. Yeah. Can you give like a case study kind of example of like what going through chemo radiation support would look like? And then in the post aftermath for one that has had breast cancer. 
Sure. So um, we do, in, let's say a woman is about to start through uh, eight cycles of chemotherapy. And first of all, we have a baseline uh, nutrition plan that she's following. And for me, it's the modified Mediterranean diet. And the reason I say modified Mediterranean is there's an enormous amount of research for breast cancer on the Mediterranean diet and how it has benefited women. And I modify it to reduce the carbs and to eliminate sugar. So we really have that as a foundational approach. And for a lot of women, that is a radical shift from eating Triscuits with, um, somebody said that they feel that eating Triscuits with avocado on it is healthy. So there's nothing in a box made by Nabisco is healthy for us, unfortunately. And we were raised, I mean, I was raised eating, you know, I thought Triscuits were a treat when I was in my teens. So there is a learning process that needs to happen to people to understand about processed foods and how they aren't healthy for us. So we prepare for chemotherapy that we, she's doing a healing smoothie, which has a protein powder or whey or a ketogenic base. And into that, we, and I just finished teaching about this. We put quercetin, which encourages ascorbate powder, which encourages cancer cells to die. We put D-ribose, which is a powder, which is a very powerful antioxidant. We put flax and chia seeds, which have flax has essential fatty acids and the chia makes a mucilaginous material, which helps with elimination. Um, we put half a cup of blackberries or blueberries, which has flavonoids, which are anti-cancer. And we have a base of water or coconut water or unsweetened nut milk as a base. And this tastes good. I mean, I wouldn't ask people to drink something that tastes horrible. So that's part of the foundational smoothie. And then they're on certain supplements, which really varies depending on what somebody needs. But I use uh, Natura Health Formulations, something called Botanibol and Botanical Treasures. They really support the blood. They have a lot of Chinese herbs in there, which take care and support the bone marrow. It's one of the ways that we keep you from becoming anemic. Now, the whole thing about chemotherapy and supplements is a lot of doctors will say you cannot take anything at all. They're not aware of the fact that there's an enormous amount of research which supports the efficacy of using supplements to take care of a person's physical health in the best possible way so they can get through the chemotherapy without having to disrupt the schedule because they're too anemic or their weight count is too down. So in order to take the best of both worlds, I have the woman stop her certain supplements three days before chemo because these supplements have don't last in your life very long. They have a very short mm -hmm half-life, they're herbs and they are water soluble. So they're eliminated very quickly. So whatever supplements they're on, we stop three days before they have their infusion. And then two days after their infusion, then they can restart their supplement protocol. So for five days out of a three week period, they're really doing everything they can to support their resilience and their inner connection to their themselves and their optimal health. And that's how we get women through chemotherapy without having to disrupt the calendar schedule because uh, you're too anemic or your white cell count is too depressed. Mm -hmm. Just, yeah. Keeping the body like a strong and resilient. Right. And, and taking care of their gut with, you know, pre and probiotics. Cause as you know, chemotherapy and radiation is very disrupting to the gut. So with radiation, there's certain supplements that you don't want to take, vitamin E being one of them. So we have to be very respectful of that. And unlike chemo, radiation happens every day. 
Mm-hmm. So we can't like have you on certain supplements and stop them around the radiation, but we can use intermittent fasting to show up to radiation more hungry. So the cancer cells are more likely to be impacted by the radiation uh, drink miso soup, a cup, one hour before radiation and a cup, one hour after probiotics are totally fine to take during radiation to support the health of the gut. And a modified version of the healing smoothie is what we use, as well as some very specific ways of eating and nutrition. And then three weeks, radiation lasts for the impact of radiation can last for up to three weeks. So after it's done, but I really feel like that impact can last for months, but I won't start with something, a vitamin E product called anatotocotrienols, which is been shown to be very high in oxidative, reducing oxidative stress, which is what happens with radiation. It creates an enormous amount of oxidative stress. So I'll start a woman on that supplement a month after she's finished her radiation treatment. Mm-hmm. Give the body a little time to, to readjust. And what do you see as like post-radiation, post-chemo? What would be a typical timeline? Like, is it a lifetime that women need to be mindful of like certain nutrients and supplements, or is it like you have a titration down after a season? Well, I think in the beginning after active treatment, there's much more of a focus of reducing the side effects from active treatment. And I think that can last for eight months to a year. Mm -hmm. And then we see how the blood work is. We pay attention to the clues of her emotions, her physicality, and what the blood work is showing us. And that's how we adjust the protocols accordingly. So there's a lot of empowerment if you're testing with the right tests every four to six months. I mean, it gives us a very clear view per se of what's happening underneath. How is your body doing from the cancer treatment and how are you recovering? And do we have any new cancer cells which have decided to pop up? And if that's the case, we need to find out about them sooner than later so we can adjust the protocol. Yeah, definitely just continuation with working closely with your practitioner, ultimately, because every body mm-hmm. is different. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Carol, thank you so much for sharing your wealth of information and knowledge with us. I would love to know just like personally, what in your life right now has been like a chronic wellness hack that you've been into lately? Oh, I start my day with my dear friend, Jane. Barlow, her father started this company, Barlow Herbal, and she has continued it 40 years later. I start my day out with tinctures that she makes, Essiac tincture, Star 20, and her Lomatium tincture. I take 15 drops of those and put them in boiling water, and I drink that every morning. That's how I start my day. And sometimes I'll put some Power Adapt by Natura Formulations in there. And I feel that that really gives my cells the metabolic messaging of the moment. And then I don't eat right when I come up, I try to do intermittent fasting for at least 12 hours every day and three days a week, I'll go up to 15 or 16. So yeah, that's my biohacking moment for me. I mean, it's definitely the little things though, the game changers that make a big difference in how we feel. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. If I, if I would have coffee first thing in the morning and I don't do carbs, so I might start, I mean, the concept of breakfast, I think we all need to shift as Americans. Breakfast can be leftovers from dinner. It shouldn't be cereal. It's like eating cardboard with milk on it. I would never do something like that, but I might have an egg or a piece of fish. I like it better if I start the day. My body feels better with this tincture in the morning and then I'll wait a couple hours and then I'll eat. Nice. I am. Yeah, I'm similar. I love dinner for any other like meal, real food, just not a big... A cardboard cereal person myself. <laughs> no, 
No. <laughs> um, well, Carol, where can find, people find out more about you and the work you're doing in the world? Um, my website, my first name is Carol and my last name is Lori, L-O-U-R-I-E.com. And there's a contact me option at the top and send me an email. And I get a lot of emails every day and I make it my point to respond to everyone. And I love hearing from you. So please feel free to reach out. Yay. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really wonderful to be Mm -hmm. with you. We'll be keeping up with your work. Well, that's it for today's episode. Again, if you're liking the show, please don't hesitate to click the five stars button and leave a review in your podcast app. I absolutely love hearing from you and it helps us cultivate more health detectives just like you. All right, until next time, go out there and continue to quiet the noise in the health, food, and fitness world.